All right, let's take our Bibles this morning. Again, selected scripture uh, this morning, so we're going to be using our Bible a little more than we usually do. Uh, That's a good thing. Get that Bible worked out. Get those pages worn down. And, uh, but I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 2, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, and uh, I'll, be look, I'll be heading toward that verse, and then I'll be picking up other verses. But in the meantime, I do want to review where I came from and where I'm going, so let's bow together in a word of prayer as you turn there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again this morning for your grace that you extend to us in allowing us to gather together freely, to be able to study your word, to be able to look at uh, the teaching in the word of God. And I pray, Lord, as we learn it, that you may be exalted and we may have a high view of God and may, we may be humbled under your mighty hand. And Lord, I pray that as we learn the truths found therein concerning your plan of salvation, that Lord Jesus, it would just encourage us even the more, to know that salvation is all of God. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I've been looking at, uh, for the several weeks, the doctrines of grace. Uh, These are biblical doctrines. They do matter deeply in our theology. Uh, And all, I believe, should believe them. These five great points uh, commonly uh, known as Calvinistic. But remember, as I started out saying, uh, that we should not regard these five points as something that we uh, used as barbed shafts, which we thrust between the ribs of fellow Christians, as Spurgeon says. And sometimes it could happen that way. It shouldn't. Instead, we should look upon them as being five great lamps which help us understand the cross, which irradiate the cross. That's what they are. And so these five points, remember, uh, have been known as Calvinism. Uh, We refer to them also as the doctrines of grace. Uh, And so it becomes in the acrostic tulip, uh, total depravity, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. And I've been on limited atonement, which also is referred to as particular redemption, and even some refer to it as definite atonement. They're all the same, uh, just different ways to try to grapple down and wrestle down the theology. And the common view, actually the common view today, uh, in the church as a whole, is that Jesus, Jesus died for everyone. Well, limited atonement does not mean that Christ's death was limited in value, nor was it limited in power. Uh, For that matter, uh, it is often said that the atonement was sufficient for all and efficient only for those who believe. And according to uh, Reformed theologians, the most important question was, and I've asked it already, what was the original purpose or intent for Christ's death? Two intentions come uh, to mind. The first one from the Arminian camp is it was his death was to make possible the salvation of all people on the condition of their believing. 
which secured salvation, of course, in the end for no one. Arminians say that the atonement was not designed by God to purchase a specific people for himself, but to make salvation possible for any person who will of his own or her own free will repent and believe. Then the reform side says, no, we believe that the purpose and intent of Christ's death was to ensure salvation, the salvation of his people, which was definite in design and definite in accomplishment. This doctrine states, according to J.R. Packard, that the death of Christ actually put away the sin of all God's elect and ensured that they would be brought to faith through regeneration and kept in faith for glory. So from the beginning to the end, it's God's plan of salvation. And from this definiteness and effectiveness follows its limitlessness. Christ did not die in this efficacious sense for everyone, not all are saved. So the issue in limited atonement is that the atonement is limited in its design. That is, the original design of the atonement was to provide a definite atonement for the elect, their sins, so that their sins would be covered and washed away and so that God's children could be made right with God and spend an eternity with a perfect God forever because they have been made perfect not by their own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I, in that uh, sense, I asked two other questions, and those questions were, uh, first, for what reason did Christ die? And I gave uh, four things, uh, and that was to justify, uh, to redeem and cleanse of sins, to propitiate the Father, meaning to turn the wrath of the Father away from the sinner, all right? And then, of course, to raise to new life. And then ultimately, uh, that person w- would die and be resurrected again. So all these mean that his death had a purpose. It had a design which was intended for some and not for others. That his death had an effective intent and was limited to certain persons. So the question, second question would have been, for whom did Christ die? And I answered it in this way, that God's purpose in his death was to redeem a certain people and not others. And of course, we looked at many scriptures that Christ gave his life in particular for certain people, specifically in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, where it tells us that all that the Father gives to the Son are drawn to the Son, All that are drawn come to the Son. All who come to Jesus Christ receives him, and he'll turn no one down who comes to him. And all who are drawn are raised up to eternal life. Remember, this is not because there was anything inherently desirable or good uh, in us at all whatsoever. It is solely because you and I, who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, are a gift to the fa- from the Father to the Son. It is the perfect gratitude and love of the Son towards his Father that opens the arms of his Son to embrace all who come to him. 
all who come to him will, none will be lost. None will be uh, left. Um, so that means also that Christ, when he prayed his high priestly prayer, prayed and interceded in particular for certain people, not for all people. And so he does not pray for everybody or the world, but only for those the Father gave to the Son. Of course, the scripture that we were looking at was, I ask on their behalf, meaning that his sheep's behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but on those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And if they are the fathers, then they are the sons. And of course, the father and the son are one. So Christ intercedes for the same people for whom he offered up himself as a sacrifice on the cross. So for those whom God purposed to redeem include all who will believe. Of course, that is true. Christ's saving work is commonly spoken of in Scripture in terms of all or the world. See, he saved those from every nation, but that's not all individuals. He saved from every class of people, but remember, that's not all individuals also. It's tied to all classes of people, not every single person. And so that's where I kind of left off last week, and I did throw out about three things for you to think about and to answer. Uh, of course, those three things were, uh, as I ended last time, I said that the father imposed his wrath due, the son under, underwent punishment, all right, for which of the following, all right, which, is the, which of the following are correct? Did he die for all the sins of all men? Did he die for all the sins of some men? Or did he die for some of the sins of all men? So those are the, the, the things that you have to grapple with when you're dealing with uh, theological things. So there's really three more reasons that the atonement of Christ is not for all the sins of all people. And the first one is pretty specific uh, and direct, is that God punishes people in hell. That's the just penalty of God, which would be unjust if their sins were atoned for. So that would be one that we have to say, all right, that's the case scripturally. Secondly, if one were to say their sins are atoned for, but that atonement is not applied because of unbelief, he fails to realize that unbelief is likewise a sin, which brings me to the passage that I asked you to turn to in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 12. And it says this, well, look at verse number 12 uh, And 13, it says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. 
So in that scripture, the issue of unbelief comes up. And that issue becomes very important because that is also a sin. Either Christ atoned for that sin or he did not. So let me just go back for a minute. What's the correct answer? All the sins of all men did Christ die for? That would be actual universalism. If this is true, why are not all men free from the punishment due for their sins? The answer, because of unbelief. I ask, is this unbelief a sin or is it not? If it be, then Christ suffered the punishment due for it or he did not. If he did, why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died? If he did not, he did not die for all their sins. Now, of course, that comes from a tremendous work written by John Owen called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. And it's a long treatise that he does that. But the point is, is that that would be incorrect. Christ did not die for all the sins of all men. Secondly, did he die for some of the sins of all men? That, of course, would be what they call hypothetical universalism. If this is true, all men have some sins to answer for. And so, are, uh, so uh, again, of course, none are actually saved. Possibly from this teaching, you could develop a theology of, of purgatory um, where they have to go there and have their sins uh, burned off or expunged during that particular time. So, again, theologically, scripturally, this also cannot be true. So the third one is that Christ died for all the sins of some people, of some men. And, of course, this is called reform uh, particularism. And if this is true, then Christ in their stead suffer for all the sins of the elect in the whole world. And, of course, I believe this is the truth. I believe this is what the Scripture teaches. And so... The problem with Arminianism is that Christ, Christ only was dying for some sins. It doesn't atone for the sin of unbelief. If a person doesn't believe, he doesn't receive the benefits of the atonement. So Arminians teach, uh, not all, but some, that Christ did 99% of the redempt redemptive work, but un unless man adds his faith his, his small fraction of effort conjured up from the moral residue left in him after the fall, then 99% of, uh, 99% Christ paid is of no effect. In other words, it's not all paid in full. So, there is a third reason the atonement of Christ is not for the sins of all people, and it's this, that God bears eternal wrath against people, which by definition means that his wrath against them has not been appeased or propitiated. 
Now, again, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians. Paul deals uh, with the truth there again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, where he says to the Thessalonian church very specifically, uh, speaking there in verse number 6, for after, this is first, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who, are, who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. In verse number 8 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So here, those who are in unbelief, those who do not obey or, or believe the gospel are under God's eternal destruction. Um, they will spend eternity away from the presence of God. And that's a great way of describing the real... Uh, essence of hell that you're away from god you are separated from a good and a loving and a kind god and you are there only to experience his wrath and so remember our view of god should not be a picture of one who is crossing his fingers hoping some will come and believe our view of god is that he is he definitely planned out an eternity to ensure the salvation of a particular group of people by the atonement of Jesus Christ. So when his people are joined to him by faith, they are credited with Christ's perfect righteousness and are freed from all guilt and condemnation. They are saved, not because of what they themselves have done or will do, but solely on the ground of Christ's redeeming work, that Christ has died for all his people's sins. It is all of grace. It is all the work of Christ. And as I started out uh, saying from Matthew chapter 1, she will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. That's what he came to do. He came to save his people. And then, of course, Revelation tells us that they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, and tongue, and people, and nation. So Christ died for a particular group from all nations of people. So coming full circle from where I began, I must reject the notion that the original purpose or intent for Christ's death was to make possible the salvation of all people on the condition of their believing that is, 
any person who will of his or her own free will repent and believe, but instead, from sound biblical evidence, conclude that the original purpose or intent for Christ's death was to ensure the salvation of his people, which was definite in design and accomplishment. And this doctrine states that the death of Christ actually, actually put away the sins of all God's sheep and ensured that his sheep would be brought to faith through regeneration of the Spirit and kept in faith until the end that anyone who comes to Christ, Christ will keep until the end. He will bring his sheep into his presence, into his glory. So Christ's death, remember, is not limited, is limited not in power, but extent. What limits Christ's death is that by God's design and purpose, Jesus died only for the elect. Those chose to be saved before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus offered a definite atonement for a particular group of people, and that atonement is personal. In other words, Jesus knows his sheep by name. It tells us in John 10, I am the good shepherd, verse 14, and I know my own, and my own know me. See, the question is, Really, not do you know God. The question is, does God know you? See, and the Bible is saying here that Christ knows his own. He knows his sheep. And yes, they do know him because he reveals himself to them. He opens up his word to them. He gives them the gospel. He shows them what he did on their behalf. And when they do that, It says in Scripture, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He lays lays down his life for the sheep. So, saying all that in the past uh, three weeks, limited atonement, particular redemption, definite atonement means at least three things. Number one, that Christ's death was an actual redemption. That means that Christ suffered vicariously, that is, he died in the place of his people. We should have been dying there. Of course, we could never accomplish what Christ did. Christ died died for us there because he was the perfect lamb of God. In this actual redemption, Christ was a substitute for his people. He assumed all the legal responsibilities. He suffered their penalty and rendered perfect obedience for them. He lived and died for an actual group of people. That's what he did. So Christ's death was also expiatory. His death actually removes God's judicial displeasure against the sinner. Christ not only eliminated the guilt, he eliminated the penalty, he eliminated the wrath due sinners, but he also lived 
in perfect obedience, fulfilling all the requirements of God's law. So when we come to Christ, when we believe in Christ, the law of God is fulfilled for us in what Christ did on the cross. Also, secondly, that Christ's death was an accomplished reconciliation. The scriptures do not teach that Christ made reconciliation with God possible, but that he accomplished reconciliation, justification, and peace with God. Now, a scripture that we can use here is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, when I was there where it says, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And then in verse 16, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. So the reconciliation that Lord obtains is because of the cross. It says, by it, having put to death the enmity. See, Christ accomplished a reconciliation not for those who made the first move toward God, but for sinners. He did it for enemies. He did it for ungodly people. And of course, Nothing makes it more clear than Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 and verse number 10, where it says, but God demonstrated his, his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So see, the only one who could reconcile an enemy with God is Christ. And that's who we were. We were enemies. We were ungodly. We were unholy. There's nothing we could have done to made our, make ourselves right with God. We had to come through Christ. So his, his reconciliation, uh, his death was an, an accomplished reconciliation. It was not an imagined one. It was not an illusion. It actually happened. He actually came into the world. So Christ's death did not make salvation possible, but actually saved his people, purifying them, delivering them, and reconciling them to himself. And then, a third thing would be Christ's death was an authentic ransom. It was an authentic ransom. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 20 and verse 28. Matthew 20 and verse 28. See, Christ's death is also described as a ransom payment to God. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, not for all, but for many. 
And this is again repeated in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. This term ransom in the Greek is lutron, and it means to uh, means a price, the price of release or a ransom. That Jesus, what he did is eliminated the penalty due from the guilt of sin by his blood. He redeemed his sheep from the curse of the law. And then Jesus, by his death, obtained the forgiveness of sins for his people. And what he did was Jesus paid the full ransom price for the release of those bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. John brings this up in his gospel in chapter 19 where he says, you know the passage, it says, for Jesus therefore had received the sour wine and he said at the end, what? It is finished, right? It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. When all the sins of his people were paid for, it was done. He didn't no longer have to spend time on the cross. It was over. He, he accomplished what he was supposed to accomplish. And when it was all accomplished, he, under his own power, bowed his head and gave up his spirit to his father. All right? So that means that this v- verb finished is the word to telestai. Actually, it is a perfect verb. That means it's complete. It's finished, absolutely finished. The word means to bring to an end, to finish, to complete. In fact, in quarter, according to papyri, uh, that's the paper that they used to write the scripture on many, many years ago, commercial documents uh, found in Egypt, the word tetelestai was actually printed across the item when it was paid in full. It was stamped there saying paid in full. And, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus Death paid his people, his people's ransom price in full. Never again does this sacrifice have to be made uh, in history. It was done forever. It was complete on the cross. Now, all right. So how does this doctrine affect you and I as we live each day on this decaying, in, in this decaying earth and this, uh, in, in this crumbling society. Well, the doctrine of a limited atonement, particular redemption, definite redemption, is a doctrine that should actually bring great encouragement to believers in at least five ways. Here's the first way. It should encourage believers because it means that all who believe in Jesus Christ are definitely saved. It's not, I hope I'm saved. It's, I know I'm saved. Secondly, limited atonement, particular redemption, brings freedom and joy because it declares the good news that at Calvary's cross, Jesus purchased our salvation by paying the price in full. I just mentioned that. In other words, there, we need add nothing more to merit our eternal acceptance. That is, We don't have to fear thinking if we have done all that is required of us. Oh no, is there something I missed to do? And you go through life doubting 
whether you are one of God's sheep or not. It was Paul who said to the Galatians, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law by doing something, then Christ died needlessly. See, Christ, faith in Christ, of course, is the answer, and it should bring great news. A third thing would be that limited tone, particular redemption communicates the good news of God's love to the individual person. Since the Lord Jesus died for his own people in particular. So in other words, we can say with the Apostle Paul, what did the Apostle Paul say? One of my favorite passages of Scripture is Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20, where it says, I have been what? Crucify with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of, Son of God. And this is what it says, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So how do I know he loves me? Is because he gave himself for me. There's the cross. That's the focus of the cross. That's the atonement. Everything that was accomplished there in the atonement, I can say God loves me with certainty. The fourth thing would be this. Limited atonement, particular to redemption, when pondered, brings great assurance. When pondered, brings great assurance. Why, why does it bring great assurance? Well, if you think about what Paul said to the Corinthian church, he says, I, I, he says in, in Corinthians chapter 6, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and you are not your own. But what? You have been bought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I've been bought with the price. God owns me. He owns all of me. He's given me his spirit. He's put his spirit within me so I endure to the end, so I can understand his word, so I can live my Christian life, so I can put to death sin. He's given me all that. He's given all that to his children. And since God paid a very costly price in order to bring each of his children to himself, it is impossible that he would be so careless as to lose any of them. God for sure will take great care of each and every person he has redeemed and bought with his precious blood. He loses nothing. And fifthly, limited atonement, particular redemption, should invigorate, as Dave Kaposha was saying in Sunday school, it should invigorate our passion for evangelizing the lost. Because God's, by God's almighty action, what does he do? He brings in helpless sinners home through Christ to himself. That's his will. 
In other words, people will get saved. That's a definite. That is, you can mark your calendar that people will get saved. It's great to be there when they do. But you know, it's not just their profession. It's seeing someone get saved and then if you are around for most of their life and see them grow and see them get sanctified by God and see them get prepared for heaven. You know, God rescues us from uh, the mire and the muck of sin, and then he lifts us up, he puts his spirit in us, he puts his word there, he puts his church there, and he begins to sanctify you, and he begins to give you a knowledge and understanding of what he's doing, and you're walking around with understanding that not everybody has. uh, See, God saves people, he sanctifies people, and God really uses us to bring the message of the good news to the lost dead sinner. The only thing that could sustain evangelism and really give us resilience that we, that we need really to evangelize boldly and persistently would be simply this, faith in the sovereignty of God's government and grace. In other words, this is God's will. God will save a people. And not, they're not all saved yet, right? He hasn't come back yet. They're not all saved from all tribes and nations. So see, the thing is that we need to go all people, all groups of people with the gospel and give it to them. See, God will save a people for himself. That means the redeemed host will be made of people from all classes and conditions of life, all princes and peasants, the rich and the poor, the bond and the free, the male and the female, the Jew and the Gentile, people from all nations and all races will be saved. So see, this doctrine should encourage us to give the gospel to anybody, anybody. It doesn't matter who they are. Just give it to them. You know, let the tiger out of the cage and let the tiger do what it has to do. You know, and it does. The word of God is referred to often as the tiger, and so let the word of God out and, and see where it, what happens. Well, some people may say, well, where does the doctrine of limited atonement actually come in in our evangelistic message? Well, here's my answer. It doesn't. It doesn't. Now, let me explain using the words of... Uh, J.R. Packard, he does it much better than I would do. See, the object of saving faith is thus not, strictly speaking, the atonement, but the Lord Jesus Christ who made the atonement. Remember, our faith is not about a system of beliefs. It's about a person, right? Of course, the system of belief supports what we understand about what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. So we must not, in presenting the gospel, isolate the cross and its benefits from the Christ whose cross it was. For the persons to whom the benefits of Christ's death belong are just those who trust his person and believe not upon his saving death simply, but upon him the living Savior. What does Paul, what, what does it say in Acts chapter 16? They said, believe in what? The Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See, it's always about Jesus Christ. The theology comes later. Understanding the theology comes later. 
So proclaim Christ to general audience, whoever it may be. So this being so, one thing becomes really clear and straight away, namely that the question about the extent of the atonement has no bearing on the content of the evangelistic message at a particular point. Now, saying that, Packer rightly communicates that this also, to say to any person or group of people you are evangelizing that Christ died for every one of you would be untrue and scripturally unverifiable. So don't go saying Christ died for everyone. Matter of fact, when you're evangelizing, don't say Christ died for you. But this is what he says. The gospel is not believe that Christ died for everybody's sins and therefore yours any more than it is believe that Christ died only for certain people's sins and perhaps not yours. See, the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sins and now offers you him, offers you himself as your savior. That's the way we should say it. That's the way we should put it because that's what is true. That the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for sins and now offers himself as your savior. So this is the message. This is the message we're to take to the world. And we have no business to ask them to put their faith in any view of the extent of the atonement. Our job is to point them to the living Christ and summon them to trust in him alone. That's the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And then praise the Lord, some days, somewhere down the line, they'll learn the theology that comes behind that. But see, the theology should really bolster our faith. It should, it should see, God's children should be greatly encouraged by this doctrine because it exalts God and it humbles man. Because our great God definitely planned out in eternity to ensure the salvation of a particular group of people by the atonement of Jesus Christ. So that means from beginning to, to the end, salvation is of God. It's of God. Amen? And that should be a great encouragement. When I first learned these truths, they really, my, my head was in a, a tailspin. Um, and it should be for you too. Because if you think about it, you can think about many questions that may come up in your mind about, you know, why and, you know, uh, how could this have taken place like this and all kinds of things like that. But when you really come down to it, when you look at Scripture, you must say, this is what God did. Right? So see, you and I can't save anybody. You and I can't save ourselves. Only God can save us. And when God saves us, he keeps us. And when he keeps us, why does he keep us? So Jesus can present back to the Father the gift that the Father gave to him. And what, whose that is? God's people. 
And then it says in scripture, all will be, all, everything will be all in all. The end will come and God's full plan of salvation will come to an end. And then, of course, the end comes, a new heaven, new earth that we'll be worshiping God forever. And believer, there will be nobody in heaven in God's perfect presence that should not be there. And everyone who has, was elect before, by God before the foundation of the earth will be there. No one will be lost. No sheep will be left behind. Why? Because God did that. If we put our two cents in, we mess the whole thing up. Right? I just thank the Lord that salvation is of God. And so we're going to head towards what the Bible calls the perseverance of the saints. That what God has done, of course, um, the next time I'm in the scripture, I'll be looking at irresistible grace or effectual calling. And then we'll be looking at irresistible grace uh, in the next couple weeks. So I just pray, think about these things. These, these are things we ought to be thinking about. Think on things above. Well, here, here it is right here. These are things above. This is what God did above, gave it to us. And when we think on these things, they do transform us. They do encourage us. They do bolster our faith. They do give us confidence to, to know that we're saved, that we can't lose our salvation once God saves us. Uh, but it also shows us that God's going to produce fruit in our life that shows us we are saved and gives us that confidence that we are. We're not perfect. We never will be. But we are heading towards glory and God setting a people aside for himself to worship him for all eternity. And just praise God that if you know Christ and you're part of that group, live for him with all your heart. And if you're not you're still under God's judgment and you need to come and believe. So if, you need, if you're in that state right then, uh, come and talk with me and I want to share the gospel with you. So, I'm ending my message. You can shut the tape off now. <laughs>